Well, I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. This morning we're going to be continuing our series today on the book of Malachi, which is prophecy from the Old Testament. And we'll be covering the section from 2.17 to 3.6. It's an ongoing series. Bill will be taking next week and Steve will be finishing off the series at the end. Well, I asked Melanie to sing some songs about injustice or justice this morning and the goodness of God. She did a great job picking out the set. Um, because that's what this message is about today. You know, we all hate injustice. We were created, thank you, in the image of God. And part of that is loving justice and wanting to see things fair. You know, from age little, we want everything to be fair. That's not fair. That was like the big phrase in our house when our kids were little. They don't say it anymore, thank goodness. We all hate injustice. And we're outraged when we see somebody getting away with something um, that they've done. One instance of that for me in years past was the trial of O.J. Simpson. Now, I don't know if you were um, old enough to remember watching on TV the car chase that happened with uh, 20 police cars and nine helicopters following O.J. down the highway after he'd written a suicide note um, and, and was about to leave the country. Um, there was a lot of DNA evidence that was shown at the trial, but back then DNA was very, very new. I mean... DNA wasn't new, but research into DNA was. And uh, they was very new enough that the jury was doubting the, the significance of the, the, the traces, the blood that they had found at the scene of the crime and then back in his home. Um, those dream team lawyers cast doubt on everything. And I remember when he was declared not guilty. I remember the fury I felt. I, was, I remember exactly where I was standing when I heard the news in the teacher's lounge at school where I was teaching. And, and looking at the news footage of the faces of the families that had been uh, affected by the murders and seeing their pain was just unbearable. It was outrageous. Double murderer had been set free. But when we see things like that, we wonder, where is God while evil, in, uh, while evil exists in our world? Murders like that, abuse, oppression of the weak, Corrupt politicians thriving. The guilty being released on a technicality. Everywhere you look, there's injustice. God is supposed to care about injustice. But the reality of our world today can really kind of give us pause. If God is truly good, why isn't he doing something about it? In our passage today, God is asked this very question. And how he answers reveals things about his character and his purposes. And it's going to help us come to a better understanding in our wonderings about the God of justice, what that really means, and give us insight into who he is and in our appropriate response to him. So let's take a look at Malachi 2.17, Remember, Malachi, each section starts with a question, questioning of God. And here's, here is what God says. You have wearied the Lord with your words. <clears throat> Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap, and like fuller soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a hard passage. (laughs) And would you please help us to understand it this morning as we look at it together? Please guide my words. May your Holy Spirit just tell me what to teach as we go through this, that uh, we would view this in a correct way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you can almost hear that indignant tone in Israel's questions. How have we wearied him? Where's the God of justice? Right? You can hear it right in him. Everyone, who, and, and this is what <clears throat> the sentiments were that made God weary. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Where's the God of justice? Well, how in the world had they gotten that idea about God? Because when God first established them as a nation, as they were about to enter the promised land, he told them, Many things, but these are two verses that he he talked about. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you. And then again in Deuteronomy 16.20, justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God has given you. God has always been firm about his love for good and hatred of evil. Even the psalmist wrote songs about God's love and justice and good. Psalm 37 says, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. And verse 89.14 in Psalms, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. God had been quite clear. So then where then did they get their understanding? Well, I think if we look at their present circumstances, we can kind of figure that out. Israel had returned from exile, from after uh, many years in exile, and they had come back to Jerusalem. Um, and their return was really regarded and was a miracle. They had erected a new temple. They rebuilt the city of Jerusalem and its walls. And when they had been in exile, before that all happened, the prophets had been promising things to them if their hearts had returned to him. And one of the things that they promised was a messianic kingdom was going to happen. And that bringing people back into the land would be the start of it. Now, let me just clarify here. It's what they thought the prophets were saying, that the messianic age was about to start. Prophecy is a little tricky, and it can often be misunderstood. Prophets were given word from God, and they wrote them down. But they themselves even didn't understand what they were uh, writing. In First Peter, 
It says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what time or person the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. You see, sometimes those prophecies of the suffering and the glory were all intermixed and mingled together, and it was hard to tell one from the other. So the Israelites were looking at that prophecy as one big event, but it wasn't. It was two. You know, um, when I was working at Camp Berea up in New Hampshire, one of my favorite things to do was sit by the lake and look at the uh, ever-changing sky and the, the water. It was just a beautiful place up on Newfound Lake. And one thing, uh, the, the, mount, the lake was surrounded by mountains. So there are mountains on every side you could look at. And you could look straight ahead across the lake. It was only two miles across. And you could see just the mountains that were all this vista in front of you as, as they rose up from the lake. But the interesting thing is, when you looked at those mountains on a clear day, you just saw just one big green, maybe a little bit hilly, but it looked like there were just, you know, a mountain here, a mountain there. But when it was foggy, it would look more like this, where you could see it wasn't just one mountain you were looking at, but actually several mountains, and the fog in between delineated out those peaks. You see what I'm saying? Well, that's what prophecy was a little bit like. When the prophets were given future events to write down, they didn't know how this was going to work out. They didn't know how... Uh, what was going to happen when or what the order of events were going to be. They were just given a chunk of information and they wrote it down. But they themselves, like Peter said, didn't really know the timing or how this was all going to go down. So they just saw, like I was looking at Camperia, this series of, of, of this visca in front of them and they didn't realize that they were separate events. We can see now, of course, uh, and, and, and in all prophecies, there were, like, for example, here's um, Isaiah 9.6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Well, Isaiah was prophesying that, and he did, a son was born. His name was Mayor Hashbaz. I can't remember how to say his name. Anyway, big, long name. <laughs> and he was born as a sign to the people, that the prophets. But also, it was prophesying about Jesus, which is a further away event. Same prophecy two different fulfillments. You see what I'm saying? So a lot of times you'd get an immediate fulfillment in prophecy and you'd also have a far-off fulfillment later on. And one of the girls in my Tuesday night Bible class uh, made the uh, interesting observation that when prophets were giving their prophecy, if it didn't come true, they were to be stoned, according to Deuteronomy or Leviticus. I can't remember where the law is, but anyway, it's there. And so she suggested that maybe the immediate fulfillment was to, to validate that prophet in his words, even though the prophecy may have been even thousands of years in the future. I thought it was an interesting thought. I, I like it. Okay, so they misunderstood the prophecies, anyway, about the Messianic age, the people in Malachi. And, uh, and that bad assumption of what they thought it said led to disillusion because the Messiah had not arrived like they thought he would. They were still under Persian rule. Um, the promised land was not functioning like the paradise they expected it to be. The crops had failed one year due to locusts, another year due to drought. Not pretty. Religious activities were becoming more burdensome than anything else. No spiritual effect at what they were doing. And the priests and people alike were violating the covenants of the fathers, 
Evildoers were having their way with no fear of punishment. In short, the world around them, what they could see, was one big mess. And so their logical conclusion was that God was not who he said he was. That his failure to deal with evil, his failure to fulfill his promises, was enough for them to doubt his character. His involvement, his justice, his faithfulness, all of those things. And it led them to actually accusing that God, the holy God of Israel, actually delights in evil. And then react in astonishment that he would say their words wearied him. You know, as much as we can judge those people from afar, it's really a common human condition that we form our ideas through the lens of our circumstances. But if it was, it was, it was as if they had a telescope, but they were looking from the wrong end. And they were evaluating who God was based on what they could see around him, them in that minutia of time and space that was theirs. And where they landed by doing that was a very bad place. And it was, what they thought about God was not based on truth, but their own limited wisdom. And what did it do? It hardened their hearts. What they assumed made them arrogant, that they knew better than God. They had a higher moral standard than God did. Can you imagine? And they could judge him, that he should answer to them. There's no faith in that question. No humility, no devotion, just disdain and condemnation. And so, yes, it wearied the Lord. So God answers their accusation and disapproval. He says, behold, I send my messenger. This is a very important word in Malachi, and I want to show you why. At the very, of course, the, the actual word malak, which is messenger, is the root for Malachi, the name for the book. And, and if, if there was a main, one main speaker, one prophet, Malachi. Um, but also, in, ver- in chapter 2 and verse 7, when he's talking about the Levites, God calls the Levites, the priests who of all people should have been revering God as holy, but instead had dishonored him in their actions and message, he calls them messengers. So they were failure. But now here in three one, God's sending another messenger. This one? not from the priestly line of Levi, different from the rest. This messenger is not identified with the priest at all. He says, my messenger, this messenger will be adequate for the task of doing the will of God. God is stating with certainty, he's coming. And who it is that will come. They just asked for the God of justice. Where is he? And in verse 1, God tells them, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The judgment you were longing for, oh, moral people of your mind, it's coming. Oh, don't worry, it's coming. But you know, in Scripture, when God announces judgment, a coming judgment, it's almost always a warning. The one exception I've found so far is in Habakkuk, where he says, you can write this judgment down in stone. It's happening. But in the other places, The warning offers a a chance for escape. If people will turn their hearts back to God, if they'll uh, repent 
from thinking incorrectly, an opportunity for turning back to him and to be rescued from impending doom. Well, he offers the same here in our passage today. Still in the future for them are two comings. The first coming will be the suffering servant. The second coming will be the reigning king. Two comings in one passage. The first would be Jesus as a man, dying for the sins of the world, giving up his equality with God a thing, as a thing to be grasped, living in complete submission to the Father in order to complete his mission here on earth. He died on the cross. God raised him from the dead, proving he was God. And now he descended back into heaven, and his full glory and authority is restored. But he's coming again. And when he comes the second time, he's going to come as reigning king. And this time, no one is going to question his claim about being God. Paul tells us every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Remember, I told you, prophecy very often has this near future and then a distant future fulfillment in it. When the prophecies of the Messiah were read by the people, even the prophets couldn't tell them apart. But we can, in hindsight, because we're beyond that first coming. We're waiting for the second, but we can see the difference and separate out what was for them, what will be for the future. We're standing in the place where we can look forward and back. So I want to look at this prophecy in Malachi 3 in the light of what we know. I believe that this prophecy contains two comings. Now, the the commentators are all over the place on this prophecy. It was a hard one to do. But I'm telling you, the more I'd studied it and the more, because I've, I've studied the life of Christ, I've studied the theology of it, and, and I've seen all what he did and the prophecies that he fulfilled, I really think we can separate them out and look at them. So I've charted them to give us a visual idea, laying it out visually that'll help us make some sense of it. So the first thing he says is, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Before judgment, God will supply a way out. His messenger is going to provide an opportunity for salvation. So that's going to happen first. Then he says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming. Who were they seeking? Who were they professing to delight in? The God of justice. He'll come. And who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The God of justice they called upon is not going to bring the relief that they think he is. You keep saying that word. (laughs) They're going to get what they deserve when he comes, as well as what the people they think of as evil will deserve. No one will be able to stand. But now, as in every time when God gives, warns a judgment, He offers a way out, a way to salvation before he comes to judge on the day of the Lord. He goes back to now talking about the messenger. He is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of gold and silver. He will refine the sons of Levi, refine them like gold or silver. Now, of course, this is a metaphor. In Hebrew poetry, lines run kind of in parallel pairs like this, or like this, I guess, (laughs) And um, one line informs or gives us further understanding about the line it's paired with. And I believe these two lines are two different ways of talking about the same thing, the messenger's purpose of refining. 
Now, to understand a little bit about it, we need to look at the, the process of refining as it was back then. It was a purification pro process. We have precious metals. They're in the earth. They're in, um, in the uh, mountains. They're, they're everywhere. Precious metals like gold and silver. And they're found embedded in other kinds of rock. And sometimes they're in veins. Sometimes they're in nuggets. But they're, they're attached. They're part of it all. Um, so in order to separate that precious metal out, what they do is they crush all of the rock. And then they put it over a fire. And each mineral that's in that crushed rock has a different melting point. And as the temperature rises, the impurities melt and come to the surface as a liquid. And the refiner sifts them out, scoops them out. More and more. And as more and more impurities come out, he keeps on scooping out until nothing is left but that precious metal. That metaphor is to, per, to picture the purification the messenger is going to accomplish at his first coming. So let's see what the New Testament says about if he did it or not. Titus 2.13 says, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up to us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Oh, he purified. Secondly, Ephesians 5. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. Christ refined like fire and he uh, purified us to be a people for his own possession. He cleansed her like a fuller's soap. Both of those things right there in the New Testament. And the result of the refining process would be so that they may present offerings in righteousness. Talking about the Levi priest there. But it's a righteousness this time, not of their own works. It's a righteousness that Christ gives us through grace. Philippians 3 says this. Paul is talking that I might gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Jesus came to offer that righteousness to us before the final judgment. He was the messenger that would clear the way for God's people to salvation. He would purify and cleanse the people so they would not perish in the final judgment day. And as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, that'll come later, but that the world might be saved through him. And then, after the first, that messenger has done his job, now, comes the judgment, the moment they claim they've been waiting for. Then I will, then I will draw near to you to judgment, God says. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and he names all these things that are sinful, and those who do not fear me. The sin was going to be judged, but those who have grasped that lifeline that Christ offered will be saved. And in the end, God would keep his covenant to Jacob, and the passage ends with this verse. For I, the Lord, do not change, O sons of Jacob. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not 
consumed. You remember how it began, the whole book of Malachi. Jacob I have loved. I have taken care of Jacob. I have kept my covenant with them. Through all of the sin and all of the faithlessness and all of that, I have not changed. I have not moved away. You have moved away. But I'm going to provide a way out through my messenger, and when I come for judgment, you can be saved. You, sons of Jacob, will not be consumed. So, how should this passage affect us today? We people who live between the two comings. Well, I think we can learn a lot from the people of Malachi's day. Um, We can learn from their mistake, that is. Because remember, they were disillusioned with God. Why? Because they were interpreting who he was through the lens of their circumstances. They were viewing through the wrong end of their perspective telescope. They had defined God through what they saw around him. Well, we do the same. When we pray, God doesn't answer our prayers, and he stays silent when we call to him. We wonder, is he even hearing me? Well, the Bible says, the righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. How about when everything in your life is going to worms? And wonder, is God really faithful? Is he faithful? Well, Hebrews says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. How about when evil prevails? And we wonder, is he really just? The Bible tells us, righteous and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How about when you feel strong, or or, excuse me, small or insignificant and start to wonder, do I really matter to him? Jesus said, are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. How about when we wonder if things have gone too far for him to fix? God says, I'm the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? God is above and beyond what our circumstances may indicate. We need to make sure that our perception of him is guided by what he has told us as true. Because God can't lie. He cannot lie. And reinventing God by our immediate perception is a terrible idea. Rather than what, than doing as they did in Malachi's time, looking around for us to decide what God is, we need to learn who God is from the scripture, his revelation to us, and interpret our circumstances through the lens of truth. It's what we're doing on the teaching team with all of our heart. Learning who God is, learning about Christ, learning about the spirit, all of those parts of him, because we need to know truth for when times come to make us question. Now, we will have questions when life seems no sense. God can take our questions, but we need to approach him on his terms if we want the result to end up in our satisfaction. We will only find peace when we approach him in faith, believing who he has revealed himself to be. When we acknowledge his wisdom, his goodness, his love, his holiness, his power, it provides a healthy faith-inspired framework in which to ask our questions and we'll wait with a perspective that'll make us ready for his answers.
So is there something on your heart today? Something that may be challenging your ability to trust God? Something that may be warping your understanding of Him as we looked at? I'm going to give you a minute right now to talk to Him about that thing. I want you to think of ways that God is bigger than that thing that's on your heart. And as you talk to Him, tell Him what you know about Him in an act of faith. Ask for His perspective and put it into His capable hands. God, we acknowledge you are greater than anything we might experience or witness here on earth. That your purposes and plans may be something we may not understand in our lifetimes, but we choose to trust in who you say you are. That you love justice and good. That you care deeply about the big things in our life and the small. Because you care deeply about us. Help us to always remember who you are and perceive the things that trouble us in light of your goodness and grace. Remember in, P in uh, this week, God cannot lie. He is who he says he is. We're dismissed. <laughs>